Good job, buddy. That's a great song. <clears throat> well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 29. Last week, we uh, started chapter 29. We got through verse 1, and, you know, I showed you how that probably by now you'll understand that verse 1 is one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. It uh, deals with the state of man. Uh, in his understanding of God and God dealing with him and God calling him and God reaching out to him. We talked about how that man has a problem. Bible calls it a sin problem, calls it an infirmity. And uh, you're going to find that uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the examples of people with issues of blood or leprosy or blindness and whatever will all be a picture uh, of, of our spiritual infirmity and the problems that we have. And we talked about how that man has a sin problem, but God has the remedy. And, of course, that remedy is God's salvation. But verse 1 focused on how man will continue to reject the calling of the reproof of the Holy Spirit of God. He'll turn his back on it. In fact, the verses that we looked at, verse 1, talked about him stiffening his neck. And we later laid that out as hardening of his heart. And I showed you how that in the Bible, the stiff neck will always be a reference to man's will uh, as he rejects God's will in his life or what God wants him to do, and then he follows his own will uh, in his own life. We see that a lot today, uh, and you know, you would think that that would just be for unsaved people because you would think that when a man or a woman gets saved that they would generally uh, change their life, but Unfortunately, that's not always true. It applies to saved people also. And I gave you a number of Old Testament verses on it and how that in time, uh, you in your heart and your mind and your will will completely reject God's word uh, to any authority in your life. And the Bible was very clear that there comes a point in a man's life or a woman's life where the remedy of God is no longer in effect. Certainly not because God pulls it away. God is not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repent, but because man rejects God's truth for so long. And the Bible talks about how that he, you know, he sears his conscience. Bible talks about how he gets turned over to a reprobate mind. I showed you in, in Ezekiel chapter 14 there where the Bible clearly says that if a man sets up the multitude of idols in his heart, and rejects the clear teaching of the Word of God that in time God will give that man the lie that he wants to believe and he'll answer him after the multitude of his heart. It's a tremendous, tremendous concept, completely unknown today. Never preached on, never taught, uh, but certainly one of the most powerful and at the same time one of the most terrible concepts anywhere in the Word of God. Let me tell you something. Saved or lost, the worst day in your life will be the day that God leaves you alone. If you're a saved person, it'll be the day that God takes his hand off you and lets the world have you. And he'll do that. If you're an unsaved person, it'll come to the point when you come so far and you reject God's truth. And like I said last week, light rejected becomes lightning. And uh, you get the answer after the multitude of the idols that you set up in your heart. And this is true of unsaved, and this is true of saved. And in both cases, Though they are going to two different places, one going to hell and the other one is going to heaven, they both deceive themselves. And there will come a time and God's remedy will no longer apply to you. 
uh, because of the hardness of your heart and you've turned your back on God for so long, you just can't get back to him. And you see examples of this all through the Old Testament. And it's an incredible concept and one that, uh, you know, that we need to heed and realize that uh, it, it can happen to any one of us. Now today, we want to look at a couple of more verses and get what we can from them. And it'll be Proverbs chapter 29, verses 2 and 3. It says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Whoso loveth wisdom rejoiceth his father. But he that keepeth company with harlots spendeth his, his substance. Alex, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning for me? Now, verse 2 starts out, and it says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But then the contrast, But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Now, this will go along with a couple of weeks ago. We saw in verse 28 where it says, A, a, a wicked man will rise up, and, and man will hide himself. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at that. And, of course, we want to look at this as it lays out doctrinally, obviously, uh, this will all be dealing with the millennial reign of Christ and the Antichrist's rule. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Will be doctrinally a reference to Christ coming in the millennial setup where he uh, has a rule of iron and uh, people rejoice. The wicked beareth rule, the people mourn, will obviously be a reference to the Antichrist and, uh, you know, his seven year uh, tenure when he uh, overtakes the world and uh, becomes uh, the false Christ, or as we know him, the Antichrist. And you'll find that uh, all throughout the book of Psalms, you'll find a reference to uh, the first part of 29 too. And this will be what we call the millennial Psalms. You know, every book of the Bible has a natural breakdown. And the key to learning the Bible, obviously, is to learn the books. And the key to learning the books is to learn the natural breakdown by which God has set it up. Book of Psalms probably is one of people's favorite books in all of the Bible. Who doesn't love the book of Psalms? And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great deal. But most people don't really understand how Psalms kind of goes together. We know from our studies here in the Bible that every, every verse in the Bible, every chapter, every book will have a doctrinal application, which has to do with the prophetic side of it. It'll have a historical ac ac uh, application, which deals with the historical side of it. And then it'll have an inspirational application that deals with you and me in our lives. And to, to, to rightly divide the word of truth, you've got to have those three down as we teach them to you here. And you'll find that in the book of Psalms, Psalms is not a, is not, it's probably one of the easiest books to understand. There's three things happening in Psalm, whether it's historical, doctrinal, or inspirational. Uh, inspirationally, it's a, well, doctrinally, it's a picture of the nation of Israel. And you'll find that three kind of Psalms in the book of Psalms. You'll find the Psalms that are great times of tragedy, great times of turmoil. That'll be the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. Then you'll find that there's times when somebody is praying for deliverance. That'll be the second coming of Christ and Christ coming back to 
to deliver the nation of Israel. And then you'll find uh, what is called the Millennial Psalms, and that's where uh, people are rejoicing and having a great time because the Lord has come back, and that's what ties into 29.2. Some of the more famous ones are Psalms 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 100, get up into 101, 104, 105, all the way up to about 150. You'll find that those Psalms start out with the Lord on the throne, happy are thy people, Blessed is the Lord of it'll it'll be a what we call a millennial psalm, and it goes along that when the righteous are in authority, that the people rejoice. So doctrinally, it's Israel going through the tribulation, praying for their deliverance at the second coming, and then into the millennium. Historically, it's David, and we all know that David went through some tough times in life, and the psalms that he uh, he he puts in there during that time are what he's going through. And then there was a time when David got delivered and you find the Psalms of thanksgiving and him praying for God to come down. And then there's times, the Psalms, when David uh, has the victory now and he's thanking God and the millennial Psalms are his thanksing God for what God has done. The inspirational is the same thing. We all go through deep times in our lives. We all go through troubles and we're naturally drawn to those Psalms that are a picture doctrinally of Israel going through the tribulation because we're going through our own personal tribulation. And there's times when we want God to put an end to it. There's times we want God to come down and deliver us from that. So we'll gravitate to the Psalms that, that deal doctrinally with Israel asking for God's deliverance. And then there'll be times when God comes down and does deliver and it's just a hallelujah time. We thank God for all that he's done, all that he's doing, and we really give him the honor and glory and the praise. And those will be the millennial Psalms and we'll come to the realization that when the righteous are in authority... The people rejoice. So Psalms is the great book that, that lays that out for us. And, uh, you know, and when it's talking about the wicked bearing rule, well, as I said, it's talking about the, the man of sin, the Antichrist, doctrinally. And you'll find in the Bible, we've studied it many, many times, you'll find that there are 18 men in the Old Testament that when you study their lives, that when you look at how they rule or how they reign or what they do, you know, that they'll foreshadow and picture in type uh, the coming man is sin of the Antichrist. It starts with Cain in Genesis chapter 4 and runs all the way up to Judas in John chapter 17. And in between that, you have guys like Nimrod, Pharaoh, Balak, Sisera, Bimelech, Saul. You know the list. And it's an incredible thing. All these guys have one thing in common, one common thread that ties them all together, even though they lived hundreds or maybe a thousand years apart. It's the fact that when they were in rule, they put their people under a great burden. They put them under a hard bondage, and the people mourned. And the great contrast is, for you and for me, is that you can live your life with Christ and the Word of God and His principles, and you can rejoice because of the authority of the Word of God that you have, or you can live your life under a cruel system of the world that's going to put you under bondage. You know, and historically, this verse will be any ruler down through history who uh, was a hard, wicked uh, a leader and, and punished his own people cruelly. Uh, in ancient history, it'd be like the pharaohs or Shennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar. A little bit later on, the Roman Empire was very cruel and, and for its time that it was in power. We see it a little later on. We see it in our own modern-day history with places like England. Henry, I mean, you could go through all the kings of England, which is quite a weighty little thing to go through. But some of the more prominent, you had a guy named Henry VIII. Henry VIII killed everybody who got in his way. It was his way or the highway. He killed every wife that he had. If she didn't give him a boy, male to the thing, he cut her head off. 
And, you know, Henry VIII was a terrible king. And then after him down the line, one of his children, Mary Souter, who later became famous as Bloody Mary, uh, she killed everybody too. And those are examples of bad ones. Then you have, coming to the throne, Elizabeth, who was a great queen, saved, born again. And then later on, Queen Victoria, uh, and there are a couple of good ones. And there's good or bad, but I'm trying to show you a contrast here. Queen Victoria, she reigned for 63 years. And she has been said by many historians to be the greatest queen that, that England ever had. During her time, was right in the middle of the Philadelphian church age. We studied that yesterday in Bible Institute. And it's when England uh, went to the four corners of the earth. And under her was a great expanse of, uh, of, of power and colonies. And she, in, in England, just like I said, the saying was that the sun never set on the English soil. She was everywhere. And it goes because you had a queen, Queen Victoria, who believed the book and allowed that book, King James 1611 authorized version, to go to the ends of the world. And, uh, you know, you, you want to compare that with people like Napoleon, people like Stalin, people like Hitler, people like Franco, Tito, you know, Tojo, Castro, Putin, uh, Putin, <laughs> Putin, yeah, Putin. And they say that wrong in Russia and you'll be in a gulag someplace, I can guarantee you. Guys like Adi Amin, who his own country just killed thousands of people. And, and, and you'll get the picture. You know, in, the, in our own political world, you have the Democrats and the Republicans. Democrats are always painted as the liberals and the bad guys. And, uh, you know, the Republicans are always painted as the conservatives and the good guys. So it's in everything. It's in everything. And inspirationally, it'll be a reference to Christianity. And, uh, and a, number of Christi- a number of ways it references Christianity. Now, we have seen from our past studies over the last couple of months, we've been talking about, you know, um, churches, been talking about pastors, been talking about how that in, in, in many cases, like the Bible talked about, that we're to be no respecter of persons or cater to rich people, and yet we see that all the time in churches. And, uh, you know, we, we've come to the conclusion that uh, in, in many cases, pastors and churches are no more different than the politicians of the world today. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, the, some of them actually are like little third world dictators. They try to control every aspect of your life. And, you know, the job of a pastor is not to control your life. The job of a pastor is to teach you the truth, get you to fall in love with the book, get the Holy Spirit of God working in your life, and let the Holy Spirit control your life. But so many times, they don't want to do that. And, uh, you know, and I, I've seen it all my ministry, almost 50 years of it now. You know, the Bible only makes two distinctions of two kinds of churches. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, you have the church of the open door. And that's a church, if you read that passage, that had the Word of God, and God set before them an open door, and no man could shut it. And that was during the great Philadelphian church age when the King James Bible literally went around the world four or five times probably a time when three-quarters of the known world had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It was the church of the open door. And then you have in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, when we move into the Laodicean church period, which we are part of today, the church of the closed door. And he says in verse 20 that, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open up to me, I'll come in with supper with him. It's a picture of the church today throwing Jesus Christ right out of it because they dump his word. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm going to tell you something. If you want the blessings of God in your life personally, 
If you want the blessings of God in your family, if you want the blessings of God in your church or whatever you're doing, get in the book. The book will change everything about you and change the perspective of everything that you need to do if you follow it and you follow its principles. And you'll find within these two churches basically two kinds of pastors. And we'll talk about them here in just a little bit. Uh, uh, one, through authority, will the people will rejoice because he's given them what he wants, uh, what God wants. The other one tries to put them under some kind of a, a burden. Uh, and in this system, you know, uh, they'll try to control every aspect of your life. I have never understood why pastors think that they have to control their people. I, I, mean, I mean, I realize there has to be an accountability system. I get that. Most pastors want their people to be accountable to them, but they don't want to make themselves accountable to the people. And it's a two-way street. And in this system, you will find pastors and churches and even Christians who will try to put you under a, 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 a false bondage to control your life. I mean, they're actually no different than Nebuchadnezzar, Stalin, or Castro. I mean, it puts you under a hard rule. And uh, they will put you under a system of rules to follow that actually have nothing to do with the Word of God. I've seen pastors that, that were so intimidated about people that were in their church, that they were so insecure in themselves, that they always are telling everybody what great things they are doing for God so their people would think they were really spiritual. And on top of that, if anybody in the church could preach better, teach better, or had any, any kind of inkling at all that they were a better in anything than the pastor, he found a way to get them out of the church or at least put them under such bondage that they couldn't ever look up. And I, I've never understood that. I mean, I've never understood what would make any pastor come to the place where he would be intimidated by his people. Hey, I'm going to tell you right out, of the ball, right out of the box, I expect you to be better with the Bible than I am. I expect you to preach better than I do. I expect you to do things better than I do. Uh, you you want to build people around you who do things better than you do. If everything rises and falls on one guy, then it actually rises and falls on one guy. And to me, everything rises and falls on leadership. And the job of a pastor is to take and train as many leaders as he can that will pick up the burden and, yes, do things better than he does. Some of you do things a lot better than I do. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where that's the way it's supposed to be. That's what you're supposed to do. And I'm comfortable with that because that's the way it's supposed to go. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And, you know, I've seen them put them under a system that we all call legalism for a better term. And, you know, I call it, you know, I call it a dark ages Christianity. Legalism is a system of rules that they put you under that really have nothing to do with the Bible. And whatever church you go to, the rules will change. You'll never know an absolute set of rules for, for what they try to put you under. And yet, the tragedy is that I've met many of God's people that all their Christian life, that's all they've ever known. And I call it a dark ages Christianity. And you say, why is that? Because during the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholic Church controlled the world or the known world. And her people, under the bondage of the rules of Rome, suffered tremendously. Absolutely suffered beyond belief. And they were told by the Roman Catholic hierarchy 
that this was the best life on planet Earth that they could ever have. And for years and years and years, the people labored under that bondage of them rules and the systems of the religion that you had to follow the rules and you had to do this and you had to do that. There was great penalty if you didn't do that. I mean, for them, for you to get right with God and you wanted to make sure you were repentant, you had to crawl up the cathedral stairs, which maybe were two, three hundred stairs on your knees till your knees were bloody. And that was the way you made penance back to God. You had to hurt yourself, cut yourself, mutilate yourself. And through your pain and agony, you hopefully found some kind of mercy and grace with God. It was a corrupt system. But they were told for over a thousand years that this was the best life on earth, and they actually believed it. Then you know what happened? God does a lot of things a lot of different ways. He knew the Reformation was coming, and he knew that the Philadelphia age was right across the, right down the road. So he had the Crusades. And when the Crusades happened, all of the people in Europe went to fight for the Roman Catholic Church, went to these far countries that, uh, that they had never seen before maybe never heard of before. And when they got to those countries, they saw a lifestyle that was a thousand times better than what they had. They went into Asia Minor and saw silk, and they saw this, and they saw inventions, and they saw that. They saw the people living a lifestyle that they could only ever hope to have. And when they went back, they weren't satisfied. And that God used that along with Martin Luther and the other reformers to break the back of the Roman Catholic Church because people saw there was another world out there other than the bondage that Rome has put them under. And I want to say to you today, there's another world out there of the freedom you have in Christ that you don't have to be under the bondage of a system that tries to hold you down. It's kind of like the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic priest wears a Halloween costume so he can present himself to be spiritual. And the Baptist, he puts you under a set of rules that you wear that will make you look spiritual. And of course, uh, you cannot legislate morals. Uh, you just can't. And uh, when I, uh, when I, and I realize, I, don't get me wrong, and we'll get into this here in a little bit, I, I, I understand how it works. But I want you to know that there's no, no rules that are going to keep you from, keep you, make you spiritual. I mean, there's churches that won't let the women wear slacks when they come to church. Hey, I've been in churches like that all my life. And I've heard every argument, you know, they go back in the Old Testament where the Bible says that the woman's not to wear that with patina to a man. I get that. But if you can look at the context, that's dealing with lesbianism and homosexuality. And the truth of the matter is, if you want to take that verse and say that a woman, a woman shouldn't wear that with patina to a man, okay, then we'll go with that. Back in the New Testament in the Bible times, every man wore a short skirt. So if you're wearing a skirt today, don't take this bad if you are. If you're wearing a skirt today from the Bible standpoint, in the Bible time, that argument won't work because that's what a man wore. My point is this. You cannot legislate morals. I think when you, in the morning, when you get up and you're coming to church or you're going to work, if in your heart and in your mind you're dressing to please the Lord, whatever you've got to have on is going to be okay. When I preach, I go after your heart. I don't go after a set of rules. You can't legislate it. I mean, every church is different. You go to every church, they're going to have a different length of a dress. You've got to go down to your ankles. It can't be above the knees. Uh, who wouldn't want that job in the ministry of the church of measuring skirt lengths? <laughs> but you can't, you can't legislate it. 
you say you say to the you say to a woman, well, when you come to this church, all you got to do is you have to wear you have to wear a dress. Okay, she wears a dress, and then it's up to her thighs. So then you say, oh nope, you got to wear a dress, but it's got to be long. So it's a dress and it's long, but it's so tight, looks like a skin diver's outfit. So now you got to say it's got to be long, it's got to be a dress, and it's got to be loose. And then she wears one so flimsy a mosquito could fly through without breaking his wings. So now you got to say it's got to be long, it's got to be thick. <laughs> it's come on, man. You cannot follow those kind of rules. It's like a kid one time he said he says I want to have some I want to have some chocolate. His dad says, "What do you you shouldn't do that. You ought to give up for lint." Give up chocolate for lint, son. He said, kid said, Dad, you didn't give up anything. He said, I did too. I gave up drinking liquor. Boy said, Dad, I saw you drinking a beer last night. The dad said, well, I, I, I gave up hard liquor. Kid says, okay, I'll just give up chocolate. You get around it any way you want to. If a change is not in your heart, if you don't do what you do because of the relationship that you have that you love him, there is no set of rules that's going to make you spiritual. I've been in churches and, and know of churches where, you know, every, every the, the guys are all required to wear a suit and tie. And like, hey, I have nothing wrong with that. I, I understand that. And I get it. You know what? And I've been in churches where the guys, when I go to preach, that they all wear, I wear a suit and tie. I, I'm not, I don't have a problem with it. And it's a thing where if a guy is given to that and he wants to wear that, I, I'm good with that. Here's the problem I get into. Don't think that encasing your flesh in a suit and tie is going to make you spiritual. It'll make you look nice. Every once in a while, you guys around here will wear a suit and tie, and I get upset with you because you look better than I do. (laughs) But I have no problem with it. But let me tell you how extreme it goes. I had a pastor friend of mine, and, and, you know, they were so legalistic on those kind of concepts that I asked him one time, and I was good friends with him. And, and we were buddies, and I preached at his church, you know, and, and uh, he, he, he was a good guy. I really liked him. He's retired now, and I don't know what he's doing, but he, he was a great guy. And I asked him one time, I said, I heard something that's true. I just want to know if it's true. We were driving together. I said, I heard that you and a bunch of pastors went, went out skiing in Colorado, and I heard that you wore a three-piece suit underneath your snowmobile outfit is that true he got real quiet and he says bob he says i'm so boring he says yeah he says i he says i did he was a guy that mowed his lawn on saturday afternoon with a shirt and tie on now i get it you want to look nice for the lord hey i'm all for that personally i think most of you look really nice here today a couple of you i'm worried about but other than that for the most part you're doing good but i'm telling you something if you think putting me, me putting you under a set of rules is going to make you spiritual, it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. Because we're, human nature is always going to find a way around it. And I think that when a woman dresses, if she wants to wear a dress, that's fine. I think she, uh, it's nothing wrong with that. I think that if she wants to wear slacks, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't, you don't measure a person's spirituality by what they have on. Hey, I've known Baptist churches where if the person didn't come to church and wasn't dressed the way the rest of the world, they asked them to leave. And it's wrong. It's just simply wrong. And I'm telling you, it's a thing where, you know, it's a, 
It's just the way that it is. I had a guy one time that I was going to preach down in Joplin. He had me down to preach for him. And he, he called me on the phone and he said, we said, well, I really want you to preach, uh, uh, do something for him. Now, I hate when a pastor, and I'm going to preach for him, and he calls me up and wants me to hit something with his people that he's trying to get across. I don't like that. I, I, I don't usually do it, uh, or I'll tell him I won't do it. But here's the deal. I guess they were down there someplace in Joplin. They got a, a boat's gambling thing like we got around here, you know. And some of his people were going out to eat at the restaurants. They weren't gambling. They, they, they were just going out to eat at the restaurants. And he had a problem with that. And he said, you know, would you preach somewhere in your message, would you just get the message across that it's wrong to go to those kind of places to, to, to eat lunch? And I said, well, I was going to preach on hell. I, I'm not sure how I fit that in there. Uh, I guess I could just preach on Jesus on the lake in the boat with the disciples and, and say, get out of the boat or whatever. I don't know what to do with that. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, what's your problem with that? And I said, and how can, I said, I don't have a problem with you doing that and believing that. I mean, it's your deal. But my problem is how consistent are you? Because if you say you can't go there because it gives the appearance of in a gambling place, then you can't go buy gas at a gas station and sell cigarettes and liquor or lottery tickets. Where do you draw the line? Is there a restaurant in town, 54th Street Grill, Applebee's, you name it, Chili's, anywhere you go that doesn't have a bar in it? That if you happen to go on any day between 4 and 5, you're with a happy hour crowd? I mean, where do you draw the line? Now, I realize, I realize. I had a guy years ago in my church that we had to get rid of, and he had a ministry passing out tracks at strip clubs. Not a very good deal, I don't think, I'm saying, you got to draw the line someplace. I get that. Here we go. I can already see the wheels turning in some of your heads. But I'm telling you, you cannot put somebody under a system of rules because the real freedom you have is what you have in your liberty in Christ. And let's talk about that for a moment. You know, my position on it is understanding my liberty in Christ. And you have a problem with that. Because the moment I say that you're not under a set of rules and you have liberty with Christ, then everybody wants to take the other side of that, and that means you can do whatever you want to do. So it's a two-way street that goes downhill either way. You know, I know we're not under the law, under the Old Testament. James chapter 2, verse 8 says that we're under the royal law. That is that Christ took the ten and put it into two, love God first and then love everybody else second. I get that. But we have in New Testament Christianity what we call our liberty in Christ. And, uh, you know, where a legalist has a thousand rules that you can't do this, the guy that wants his told his liberty in Christ, he says, I'm saved, I can do whatever I want to do. And that's simply not true. But here again, we'll just come back to the Bible. The Bible always answers any question that we have about whatever we're asking it about. And here again, it comes to our rescue with two verses that completely explains what he's talking about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, he says this, All things are lawful unto me. Okay, there it is. All things are lawful unto you. There's no law governing anything in your life other than the sin things that are found in the Bible. But as far as your everyday life, all things are lawful unto me. I get that. I get that. But... All things are not expedient. 
That means even though I can do all things, some things are not wise for me to do. Why is that? Because I, all things are lawful for me, he says it again, but he says, I will not be brought under the power of any. In other words, whatever your liberty is that you want to do in your life, you want to make sure that whatever you say I can do, you don't, it doesn't get control of you. Then in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, he almost the same verse, but he explains it even a little bit better. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. That's the same. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Oh, okay, then let me give it to you. Your liberty wasn't given to you so you could do whatever you want to do. Your liberty was given to you that you could do for Christ whatever Christ wanted you to do. And whatever you do with your liberty is okay as long as, one, Christ gets edified by it and the people around you get edified by it. See how the principle works? You don't have a right to do whatever you want to do. I have a right to do what I ever want to do, go wherever I want to go, be with whoever I want to be as long as Christ gets edified by it. Not me. Or you get edified by it. That's Romans chapter 14. Ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmity of the weak and not to please himself. I'm not under a system of rules. I'm under the royal law which says that I love God first and I love you and in my life the liberty that I have is to do whatever God's called me to do, not be under any bondage or any law, that everything in my life might edify Christ first and be an edification to you second. That's how it works. But you see, my liberty is given to me to do what God wants me to do. It's the guidelines of my liberty, my edifying Christ. And I'm telling you, when you... When you deal with your heart under the biblical principles, because you don't do that with man's rules. You know, man's rules change wherever you go to church. These guys will have this set of rules. These guys will have this set of rules. These rules won't match this rule. You'll have to do these. They'll add some more. They'll take some away. Because the rules of man will change with different men. But the principles of the Word of God will always stay absolute. They never change. So you don't live your life by the rules of man. You live your life by the principles of the Word of God. A principled life. It will change every, everything about you. It will give you everything you knew. Where rules will try to control your flesh through uh, legalizing or legislating morals, principles will control your heart. And when your heart becomes under the principles, guidelines of the Word of God... It comes back to that attitude in action. Whatever your attitude is toward the Word of God and it being principles in your heart will produce the right action. And for years, pastors and churches have put their people under the bondage of those kind of things. And it's a burden and a curse to them. And it's certainly not God's remedy. Hey, I've watched it all my life. I've watched the churches that, and the Christian schools that had those kind of rules. And I've watched that today you can't even find the kids that went to school there. They're gone. You know why? Because they figured out how foolish it was. Now, our verse is talking about two kinds of spiritual leadership, two kinds of churches, two kinds of men who are going to either put their people under the authority and the people are going to rejoice because of it because they have the freedom through the Word of God to be everything that God wants them to be, or the guy who's going to put them under some kind of bondage. 
And in the Bible, you'll simply find four men. I mean, there's a lot of them, but four in particular that are great examples of a good pastor and then a bad one. And, uh, you know, or just leadership in general. You know, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel and the New Testament church, they have a lot of things in common, even though two different dispensations. One's under the law, one's under grace. I get that. But they still have a lot of things in common. And one of the things they both have in common, both in the Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, both places, the people are absolutely dependent on good leadership. That's why God, you can see in the Old Testament, the men like Moses, the men like Elijah, the men that God brought down, David, Solomon, the men that God gave them that were good men who led them, Joshua, Caleb. They were dependent. And when the male's men were in, in power and ruled, the nation went well. But when you get the Ahabs, you get the Hezekiahs, you get the, all the guys, the Joashes, and all those ones who were bad ones, then we see how it goes. And it's the same way in Christianity. I'm going to show you in a little bit how that works. But, you know, it's a lost concept today. And uh, churches today, pastors today, they're not into building people. They're into building megachurches. They're, in, they're into big in churches that, uh, that they, everybody looks at and says, wow, God must be there. Look how big it is. Let me tell you something. I'm not interested in megachurches. I'm interested in building mega people, men and women who can, 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 can grow and, and be everything that God wants them to be. The young single people we have in our church, the young couples and the moms and the dads that are just throughout this church that have fallen in love with the Word of God. They're part of the Bible Institute. They're learning the Bible. The Thursday night Bible study, the questions they ask, the people ministry of giving themselves over to really learning the principles. It's a lost contest today. Men and women need to be strong leaders today for their families first and then for the mission that God has called them through their church. And that takes a principled life. It really does. Now, our first two, quickly here, will be David and Solomon. And uh, where David, uh, and you know, I don't know if how, would you, how you study the Bible, but when you come up two guys like this who obviously stand out, uh, there's something here. David is the warrior king. He, he wipes out the last of the enemies of Israel. And when he's done, they're all wiped out. And so Solomon comes to the throne. And where David reigns for 40 years in fights, Solomon reigns for 40 years in peace. And there's no wars because David killed them all. So if you want to take that from a practical way, here's what I would do. I'd study David and show through his life and show you how to, how to, how to fight for God. David goes through around 27 battles. Uh, depending on how you count the battles, maybe more than that. But he goes through conflict and battles with people like Saul, the Philistine, Goliath, Amalek, the Ammonites, and Absalom. The list is endless. Every one of those battles will show you the way to fight what you're up against in your world. And he's an incredible picture of the warrior through his relationship with God that I get he has his issues. I understand that. But he's victorious at the end. Now, Solomon will show you how, through a relationship with God, how to build your temple. So you get David how to fight the battle. You study Solomon how to build your temple because he built the temple. And what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? You get those two guys working for you. You'll get something going. David has all three offices just like you do. David was a king, Matthew 1, 6. He was the priest, 2 Samuel 24, and he's a prophet. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 25. So were you. He's the greatest king that Israel ever had. And I know he had his issues. I'm not taking that away from him. But I'm telling you right now, every king in Israel, the other 33 for the Judah and the 33 for Israel are all compared to him. He's a king and a pastor to the people, and they loved him. Now, there's two verses in the Bible that illustrate these two men who, in my mind, are a picture of two kinds of pastors, Christians, leaders, whatever. And for David, for David, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15. And when I think of David or I think of what a pastor should be, to me it's Jeremiah 3.15 where he says, And I will give you pastors according to my heart which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. That was David. In fact, Acts chapter 13 verse 22, he said he was a man after God's own heart. First Kings 15.5, God said he did what was right all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. David is an incredible guy. He's an incredible picture. And he is a picture of what leadership should be. You want to? You want to learn how to fight. That's David. You want to learn how to build your temple. Sometime you want to go in and you want to just read uh, where Solomon's prayer for the dedication of the temple. It's one of the most powerful prayers anywhere in the Bible. Where if you want a prayer of getting right with God when you get out of fellowship, you want to study David. If you want a prayer to get your life where it needs to be and be everything that God wants you to be and be the man for God's people, then study Solomon. It's one of the most amazing things. He starts out talking to God, standing up, and he winds up the prayer on his knees. Incredible prayer. And those are two good examples for us, for you and for me. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, David has mighty men of valor. Wow, what a great, what a great study that is. And yet when you look at those guys, you'll find that those guys were standing in line to be with David. They loved him. He was a great leader. He was a great commander. He was a great pastor to them. He was a great king to them. And they were proud to be his mighty men of valor. And when you come through that passage, you'll find the four great essentials it takes to be a leader and be something really great for God. And you find that in these four guys. And David instilled that into these guys. He just didn't look around and he took guys and he trained them to be the kind of warrior that he was. And he had to instill in them four concepts that you find when he talks about these men. The first one is courage. It takes courage to take your stand for God if you're going to ever take your stand for God. But courage alone is not enough. So as you read down through that chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 23, you'll find the second great aspect is determination. You've got to have courage, but courage without determination isn't very good. Because you can have courage and just do whatever you want to do. But when you are determined to do something for God and you have the courage to do it, there's something special. But courage and, and determination is good, but it takes a little bit more than that. And the third great quality you'll find in these guys is loyalty. They're loyal to David, and David most certainly is loyal to them. Because you can be courageous and you can have determination, but if you're not loyal to something, then it really doesn't mean anything. And then the fourth thing that you find in these guys, they were courageous, they were determined, they were loyal, and then they had honor. Honor is simply that you honor the things that God has given you. Honor is the bond that holds us together. Honor is the thing that when push comes to shove, is the glue that holds God's people together because they are 
they are courageous and they are determined and they are loyal to that determination and through that they have honor. You know what's missing today in God's people's lives, in pastors and churches? Honor. They don't honor anything. They, they don't, there is no honor. They'll treat you like a dog. They'll use you. They'll sec, sell you out. They'll do everything they can because all they want to do is get what they want. There's no, there's, no, there's no loyalty and there's no honor in that loyalty. The second two will be Saul and Ahab. And we'll throw his wife Jezebel in there too. We'll throw her in here. She can throw it out of the window a little bit later on in the Bible. And these are two examples of a bad one. Where Saul, and I'm going to show you here in a minute, the eight characteristics of Saul that are the eight characteristics of the modern day pastor. Where he is that, and he represents that bad leadership. Ahab and, of course, Jezebel represents the bad doctrine and the leadership of teaching and Bible that is corrupt. So the eight characteristics of Saul and you'll find this in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and chapter 14. The first thing that you'll find that Saul does is he takes the Bible from his people. 13, 19. And that's the first thing that most pastors do. They take the Word of God right out of their people's hands and tell them a better reading should be or a better translation should be. And in doing so, they take the Word of God right out of their hands. The second thing, in 13, 8, he pretended he was something that he was not. He pretended he was a priest. When he wasn't a priest, he had no business offering a sacrifice. And like most guys today, they pretend they're something they're not. They give you the illusion that they really know a lot about the Bible when they don't know anything about the Bible. And they rule you through fear and intimidation. The third thing that he did is in 13.3, is he took credit for everything that the people did. He didn't do anything. And yet his people are out there doing all this stuff and he's taking the credit for it. Instead of giving the credit where it belongs. The fourth thing, over there in 14.24 and verse 33, he puts them under a non-biblical system to control them. He makes them take an oath that has no biblical basis whatsoever. The fifth thing, he's like most pastors today, he, he lets his own son die in battle, 14.45. He pastors a great church, but his own kid don't come to church. He pastors a great church, but his kids are out in the world. Or he loses them. Or they commit suicide. Or they, they go out in some terrible situation. That's Saul. He has a total disregard for the authority of the Word of God in 15.3. God tells him what to do, and he does exactly what he wants to do. And the reason why he does that is he's just like in number seven, he's just like most guys today, that the end for him always justifies the means. He wants to do something, and it doesn't matter what he has to do to get there as long as he gets there. And the last thing in 14, uh, 24 to 33, everything, everything's all about him. Everything's all about him. He's the great this, he's the great that, he's the king. But when it all falls apart, he does what they all do. He blames the people. And I tell you around here that everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything. If this church fails, it will not be your fault, it will be my fault. If my family fails, it won't be because some gym teacher or this person here or that, it'll be because I failed. Everything rises and falls on leadership. That's why it's so imperative to build courage, determination, loyalty, and honor into every one of you kids. 
to have you come to the place that you rise up through the rubble of Christianity. You rise up through the rubble of this world and take your stand. His verse is found in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 5. This is his verse. It says, stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. Two great men, one terrible, one good, two great verses that illustrate who they are. And the authority talked about in verse 2 will for us be the reference to the authority of the, of the Word of God. Here at Old Pass Baptist Church, we don't operate by a set of worthless man-made rules. We will always operate on the absolute biblical principles that will define for us right and wrong and leave nothing to the imagination. It isn't about my opinion, your opinion, or what you think about it. It only comes down to what God thinks about it, and that will be laid out within the principles. How to do something, how not to do it. Clearly giving us God's mindset on it, not man's. Principles illustrated through types or examples will make everything so clear for you. And we follow the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. It's a great principle. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. It's what's in your heart that I'm concerned about. And as I said, man-made rules will continually change because they're made by man. But biblical principles will never change because God's authority never changes. And uh, principles will separate you from what is Christian and what is spiritual from what is biblical and what is scriptural. There's a lot of things out there that are Christian and they're spiritual, but they ain't biblical and they're not scriptural. Principles will separate you from that. And when you're put under a rule of man's law to make you spiritual, there's no joy in that. I go back to, uh, to Saul. When he wanted his mighty men of valor, he had to force them. He had to conscript them. He had to make them be his mighty men of valor. They didn't want to be with him. And I'm telling you something. Uh, your liberty in Christ has been taken away from you in many cases, and uh, it's, a, it's an absolute mess. Absolute mess. And I'll take it one step further. And uh, nowhere I, do you see this more clearly than in the failure of modern-day missions today. You know, everything goes along hand-in-hand, hand, and the churches fail Missions fail, pastors fail, Christians fail. When you lose the Word of God, you lose those seven things we've talked about uh, many, many months ago. Many times we've talked about it. You know, for me, the aspect of missionaries, if I was going to take a, a model for missionaries, I would take the Moravians. The Moravians were under Count Zindendorf and August Spandenberg, and uh, he had a plot of land in Germany. And he opened it up to start training for missionaries to go to the world. And if I was going to be a missionary, which I am, I'm a missionary to Kansas City, but we got the idea that missionaries don't have to go to foreign lands, and I understand that. But you know what? Uh, they, they were an incredible model for missions. And they, had a, they, 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 they trained people, and people had a burden to go to other people, and they got a one-way ticket. There were Moravian missionaries who sold themselves into slavery, never to be free again, so they could reach the African black man for Christ. Now, that's missions. And, of course, um, that's so foreign today. 
It's a thing where they, they got a one-way ticket. And when they went there, they became part of that culture, never to come home again. But they followed the greatest missionary example anywhere in the Bible, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came down from heaven, he left the throne of heaven, he came down, left his culture for this one. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He came sin for us who knew no sin. He is the perfect model of the missionary that the, the uh, Moravians patterned their whole missions program after. He came down and became one of us. He never pushed himself off as holy. He didn't have a halo, sorry. He didn't always wear white starch robes. He dressed in the common dress of the man of the day. He lived with the common people. He did everything that everybody else did, yet without sin. And he was tempted on all points like we were. He came down from the Son of God to be the Son of Man, even though he was always the Son of God. And he set the model for us. If you want to reach people, you've got to become one with them. You've got you to open up yourself to them. Missionary one time was failing in Japan terribly, and he couldn't figure it out. He was so discouraged, and he finally asked some old Japanese guy why that they wouldn't listen to him. And he said, American missionary, you love my soul, but you don't love me. Got to become one with them. You go back to the great Philadelphian church age, you see men like Robert Moffat, David Livingston, Adonai and Judson, Hudson Taylor, all oh, the list is endless. Those men, when they went to the mission field, they spent their whole lives there. Robert Maffitt spent 51 years on the mission field. David Livingston went into the biggest part of Africa for, for years. Nobody saw him or heard from him. And finally, they sent the New York Times reporter, Stanley, to Africa to try to find him. And you read the account, it's what is incredible. Stanley says, I walked around this little, in the middle of the jungle, I walked around this little bend in the trail, and there was a, there was a camp there, a tribe. And there, out of one of the little huts, came Dr. Livingston, which is the famous little quote that most of you young kids don't know, Dr. Livingston, I presume. When Dr. Livingston died in Africa, and they buried him in Westminster Abbey in London. His body is there. But before they shipped his body back, the Africans cut out his heart and buried it in Africa. You know, I wonder if we died and they cut out our heart, where it would be buried today? It's incredible. Missionaries today, they go for two years and then they come back for a year, you know. And I understand it. It's not their fault. It's the system. They got to raise their own support. They got to do this. They got to do that. I will tell you something. You go someplace to build a work, you can't build it in two years. It'll take you five, six, seven years just to get your feet on the ground. And when you start getting something going for two years and you got to take a year off and come back, you're basically starting over again. We've lost the concept. We've lost the principles. We've lost the mindset. Hey, let me tell you something. When I come to Kansas City, that was it. I left my mom. I left my dad. I left my sister. Barb left her family. And this is where we're at now. This is our home. Yeah, I, I go back once a year, but not because I want to. <laughs> it, it's, it's a thing where that's, that's what I got to do. But it's a, it, it's you know, and I and I'll tell you right now, and you can justify this. When we're back there, she's always saying you're always on the phone with somebody back here. 
You're always solving problems. You're always solving this. And I get that. You want to go on vacation. You want to go home. You want to you know, kind of forget this place. I'm sorry. You know what? I can't. This is my, where my heart is. I mean, I enjoy it. And we go to eat at Heggie's. We go to eat at all those good places. Yeah. My Papa Bear's. Yeah. That, 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 I get it. Uh, I enjoy that. But you know what? My life is here. It's here. I got transplanted from there to here. And if God called me to go to Africa, called me to go to wherever, that's where I would stay. And that's where I would be. And you'd never see me again. Unless I needed something. Then I'd call you. But, but th- that's what it has to be. It, it has to be. And you know what? It, I understand we're talking about a world thing concept of missions here that has miserably failed. But I want to tell you something. It's true in your life because your mission field is where you go to work tomorrow. Your mission field is the families that you reach out to, that you're around in your neighborhood. You've got to have the same kind of dedication. When some new people come in this church, what do you do? Do you sit over here and do your phone? Or are you over there making an investment in their world? That's what it takes. And that's what is missing today. It's, it's just the way that it is. The model in the Bible is the Lord Jesus. And the Moravian missionaries picked that up. And the men in the Philadelphian church, like Robert Moffat, David Livingston, and all those guys, they gave their lives. Some of them buried their kids on the mission field. Some of them lost their wives on the mission field. Some of them died on the mission field themselves. You see, the principles will change your heart. The principles will take self out of your life and out of your world, and the principles of the Word of God will transform you into Jesus Christ, and you will see the world completely differently. And that's what a pastor needs to be. Verse 2, Whoso loveth wisdom rejoices his father, or makes his father rejoice, God the Father, but he that keepeth company with harlots spendeth his substance. Whoso loveth wisdom, that will be God's wisdom over, we know, the wisdom of the world. I've said it many times, the key to learning the Bible the right way, the key to getting the Bible down in your life will never be just reading it nor studying it, though obviously you're going to have to read it and study it. But the real key to learning the Bible will be you loving it. If you love it, you'll learn it. And I'm just telling you, you love it more than anything else on this planet. And loving it so much that you're willing to allow it to change everything about you. You, absolute, you, you put absolutely nothing in front of loving that book. Uh, you, you're, not, uh, you're, you're, not, you're not brought into the power of anything, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6. No boyfriend, no girlfriend, no job, no relationship, no amount of money, no worldly possessions, no career, no education, no bowling league, no golf club, no sports. Uh, I mean, and on all those things are fine. There's not one thing wrong with any of that as long as it's run through the Word of God and not around the Word of God. You know, Christians serve God in only three capacities. You have one group that serves God out of fear. And they serve him as slaves, unfortunately. Then you have a group that serve him under obligation. And they serve him as hirelings. And then you have those who serve him simply because they love him beyond belief. And they serve him as sons. And when you do, your father rejoices. But contrast to that, he that keepeth company with harlots spendeth his substance. 
Now, at first glance, I mean, you cannot miss the story of the prodigal son in, in Luke chapter 15, you know, who leaves his father. And the Bible says that he wasted his substance on riotous living. You can't miss that connection. And, uh, you know, went out and turned into the world and all those things. But there's something else here that we need to stay within the context of where we're going here. You know, I understand that there are physical harlots in the world that a person can ruin their life with and riotous living and all that. I get that. But you know as well as I do in the Bible that whorish woman, a harlot, Proverbs 5, Proverbs 7, over there in 1 Kings 18, Revelation 2.20, is likened to Jezebel, the harlot. She is the whorish woman of Proverbs. She's the strange woman. And she's a picture of false doctrine and bad teaching. And when a child of God gets into that, you know, he'll dishonor not only his father, but he'll spend his substance in the wrong church. He'll be listening and getting taught, and he'll lose his millennial inheritance. The Bible gives two warnings. One, that let no man take your crown, and that you keep your garments. And what you have inspirationally in verse 2 and 3 is a contrast between a man who loves righteous authority and allows it to guide his life through the principles and he takes his substance, substance, that's what you really are, what, it, what you're made of, your substance. That's who you really are. It, when everything is scraped off and everything comes down to the foundation, your substance is what you have to give God. And he loves God's wisdom so much that he'll spend the rest of his life serving God with his substance. And his father rejoices. And then a man who allows himself to stay in a church or under some kind of false teaching or the world system that oppresses him and, and teaches him false doctrine, the whorish woman, the strange woman of Proverbs 5 and 7. Oh, and I've seen it. He'll moan. How many times I've heard him? They'll moan and complain about the pastor, about the music, about the lack of Bible teaching, about this, about the dances up on the thing. They'll moan and complain about it, but they'll never, never do anything about it. And they waste their substance on harlots and riotous living in the name of Christianity and a life of rebellion and God's, against God's established authority. Oh, they'll complain about it, not like it. They'll say, oh, I just hate it over there. Oh, it's this or that. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, we don't get the Bible taught. Oh, I know. I have to follow you online. I have to do this. I just come to the... Hey, listen, why don't you just get the guts to get out of that place and get some, and quit wasting your substance? But they won't. Now, in your study of the Bible, we've seen the great parallels between the Old Testament nation of Israel and the New Testament church or Christianity. Both God's structure. In the Old Testament, His structure was a nation, kingdom of heaven. In the New Testament, His structure is the church, the kingdom of God. And yet the same basic elements are at work in both. I know one's of the law, one's under grace, but in both cases, the the furtherance of God's message came, had to come through the families. The families in the Old Testament, certainly families in this church. And it had to come with leadership that was willing to understand that I need to teach you how to fight David and then teach you how to build your temple, Solomon. 
and take you and not give you a set of rules that you just try to keep that you can't keep, but give you the principles of the Word of God that will change your heart, your attitude, and your action, that you will come to the place in your life that you'll take for the rest of your life, your very substance, and do with it whatever God calls you to do. And understand that your liberty in Christ is the freedom to do that as long as God gets the edification of it, God gets the glory, and you edify Christ and the cause of Christ, and you edify the people that are sitting next to you. You learn how to live your life today by the examples of yesterday. The book of Proverbs is the book of God's principles. And it shows you exactly what God thinks about everything in life. And we take those principles and then when we put them into our hearts, we wrap our lives around them. They become one with our very being. It will take your substance and you'll bring honor and glory to your Father. Well, we'll hold up there. And uh, guys, uh, get your, uh, make sure you get your tracks and your water for uh, 